0: Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, fellow biographer and bio member John Farrell, better known as Jack, who talks with Molly Ball, author of Pelosi, a portrait of the Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. It was published by Henry Holt in May 2020. Jack started by asking Molly, a first-time biographer, how she came to write about this powerful politician after beginning her career as a journalist in Cambodia.
1: I'd always dreamed of being a foreign correspondent and this was a way to sort of fake it by working for a local English language newspaper and I wanted to go abroad and see the world I regretted not having done that as a college student and Cambodia was sort of perfectly positioned as a place that was quite safe for westerners and with a thriving sort of expat and NGO community you could plug into anyway I got cancer I moved back to the United States I went to work for the <laughs> <laughs> You got cancer. I had Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which is totally curable, and went on to have three kids.
2: So you are reaping a lot of good karma.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's right. So I I became a political reporter at the Las Vegas Review Journal, which was a wonderful place to start covering politics because Nevada is a fascinating place and had a big uh, role in the national news with Harry Reid being the Senate majority leader and as a swing state in the 2008 election and an early state for both parties' primaries. I was a Knight Wallace fellow at the University of Michigan. I moved to DC. I wrote for Politico. I wrote for The Atlantic. And now I am at Time Magazine. And when I got this amazing job at Time Magazine in 2017, Uh, One of my first assignments was to write a cover profile of Nancy Pelosi, who at the time was the House minority leader, who, uh, despite having been America's first woman speaker way back in 2007, had actually never been on the cover of Time magazine. And it had in fact never been on the cover of any American news magazine. And she was kind of annoyed about this, not to me, but in other interviews, you'd see her sometimes sort of and have these bitter little asides like, oh, they put Boehner on the cover, you know, (laughs) they, they put McConnell on the cover, they put Newt Gingrich on the cover. But of course, we wanted to put her on the cover in 2017, early 2018, because she was in the middle of the news cycle. We had the midterm elections coming up, the first national elections of the Trump era, and it was all sort of hinging on her role as someone who was both an asset for the Democrats and a significant headache, uh, the source of a lot of angst because she'd been around for so long and was the subject of so many attacks.
2: So wrote (laughs) this profile.
1: The profile itself, I do want to talk about a little bit because, you know, I've always as a political reporter had a special focus on uh, women in politics for obvious reasons. And uh, 2018 was a year when the principal dynamic in American politics was this historic uprising of American women that happened the day after Donald Trump was elected. It didn't happen beforehand. They didn't come out for Hillary Clinton, who was on the ballot as the first woman major party presidential nominee, uh, but they did come out the day after she lost. And nothing like this had ever happened before in American history in terms of just the magnitude of women's activism directed specifically at the electoral process. Women organizing, women voting, but most of all women running for office in unprecedented numbers. And this is after decades of, you know, me talking to various do-gooders about their multimillion dollar efforts to get more women to run for office. And it was Trump who finally did it. So it was ironic to me that people were talking about Nancy Pelosi being such a problem that all anybody talked about was, you know, will she be the reason that the Democrats lose the midterms because she's so unpopular, because she's so polarizing, because her public image is so toxic? Or even if they do win the midterms, will she be able to be speaker again, given that the party is so divided and so many people dislike her or have qualms about her continuing to lead? So at a time when those were the two principal narratives about Nancy Pelosi, I wrote a sort of against the conventional wisdom profile that sought to reposition her as someone who had always been underappreciated and who I argued for probably gendered reasons had always been seen through this prism of how she was perceived rather than being seen for the things she had actually done and accomplished in, in her long and storied career. So there was this hilarious phenomenon where uh, you know, that piece published before the midterms and then the day after the midterms, it was like everybody woke up and looked around and went, oh, maybe Nancy Pelosi is actually good at her job, despite all those nasty things we said about her before the election. Maybe we should actually keep her around to, to run the place because nobody else knows how to do it around here. And that was the moment where I, I, I sort of realized, you know, here's someone that everybody seems to have an opinion about but nobody really knows, and whose story I, I thought at the time was really ripe for a retelling, particularly through a sort of feminist lens. Uh, so that's how the book came about.
2: Excellent. Now, did you reach out to an editor, or did you have an agent? How did you deal with the publishing world?
1: Yeah, I would not say the process was normal for me. I'd had an agent for several years, and we'd kicked around book ideas, uh, and I should give him a shout out here, Howard Yoon, he's wonderful. But I I told him, you know, I didn't want to write a book just to write a book. I wanted to write a book when I felt I had an idea that that was worthy of it. Um, And the Pelosi idea actually came from uh, the publisher, my eventual uh, editor at Henry Holt, also a brilliant person, I'd like to shout out Serena Jones. She actually approached my agency with the idea. And so I was very, very lucky. I didn't even have to write a book proposal. So that's how that whole process
2: went. Um, so you went in with a thesis um, rather than going in blind. Um, did you find that there were places where you went, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't fit my thesis. I have to open my mind a little bit or make a little bit of an adjustment um, here about what she was because she's in her 80s now. Yes, yeah,
1: she, she turned 81 this year.
2: Okay, so she is definitely a woman from another era and yet is perhaps because of where she grew up and the the household she grew up with in Baltimore is very comfortable with power. So how did your original thesis change as you did the research?
1: That's a great question. You know, obviously I would have loved to uncover uh, the massive scandal lurking in Nancy Pelosi's past and I conspicuously failed to do that. So I can't say I was surprised by anything of that sort. But it is very important as a reporter to to keep an open mind about your subject and not be too married to a particular thesis or perception uh, that you can't see contradictory evidence. And I would say, while I learned all kinds of surprising and delightful things that I hadn't previously known about Nancy Pelosi's life and career, the one sort of big overarching element of the narrative that didn't fall into place until relatively late in the reporting process was the sort of final arc you know, mine is not the first biography of Nancy Pelosi. When she became speaker for the first time, a few biographies were published, uh, none of which she cooperated with, but they all took the occasion of her being the first woman speaker to look at uh, her life and her methods. And so I'm writing a biography about 12 years after that. And it was those intervening years when the Democrats were in the wilderness when she was the minority leader after they lost the house in 2010, th- I wasn't sure how to tell that story, right? Because they're sort of dispossessed. I've already i have already had this idea that she's sort of a triumphant figure. And yet the more I researched and talked to people and, and learned about those years, the more I saw that there really was a sort of down and then up arc to that chapter where she had sort of hit rock bottom in the Obama administration in terms of her internal leverage, which is so important to her, uh, her ability to whip votes, to get things done. So I really do think there, there ended up being a sort of redemptive turn at the end, coinciding with you know Trump going into office, which of course she wasn't happy about, but he ended up being a perfect foil for her in a way that I think rescued her reputation and her abilities at a time that they were at their lowest ebb.
2: Interesting. Did you find that she was cooperative with you?
1: It depends how you mean that. I mean, she cooperated with the book in the sense that she gave me many, many uh, in-depth interviews. I didn't you know rule any questions out of bounds, although she has plenty of practice in not answering the question if she doesn't want to. Of course, she is a politician. And uh, at least as important as that to a reporter is does your subject sort of give the green light to the people around them? Do they tell their friends and family and, and, and close colleagues and confidants it's okay to talk to this person? And she mostly did that, which was extremely helpful. At the same time, you know, and I talk about this in the book, she's a tough interview. She doesn't give a lot away, she's very on message. And maybe some of this is calculated or strategic, but a lot of it is just personal to her, and, and perhaps generational, as you sort of alluded to. She's just a very private person. She's not a, you know, confessional. I'm going to tell you everything I was thinking. Her daughter Christine was once quoted uh, saying, she, "You know, she doesn't engage in public introspection." And I think that's the correct characterization.
2: How do you, as a biographer, deal with that? Do you go, try to go around it? Do you? pole vaulted over it to use one of her, uh, or to try to batter it down through a frontal assault. Um, All
1: of the above, right? You try whatever you think will work. You 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 try every tool at your disposal, and you know I think I only partially succeeded. There is a certain depth that I was never able to get to, but I don't feel too bad about that because I'm far from the only one. And even a lot of close friends of hers will tell you that. There isn't a different Nancy Pelosi who turns on when she knows she's off the record or when she knows she's among her personal friends. She's really like this with everyone. She just is a very private person, a guarded person, a person who, who only shares what she intends to share about herself, a person who, you know, is incredibly confident and self-possessed and just not needy in any way when it comes to other people. So that in itself is a psychological insight of sorts, right? And so you learn those sorts of things, even as you still feel that some parts of your subject are inaccessible from talking to people who've known them in a personal capacity, talking to people who've known them in different stages of their life. I was not able to interview, unfortunately, her her beloved older brother before he passed away. Uh, Tommy Jr. But I was able to interview her longtime confidant and high school boyfriend, uh, Ted Benatoulos, who went on to be the accounting executive of Baltimore. But, you know, it's, it's people like that that you talk to. And then even more than that, I would say, and, and, and maybe uniquely for Pelosi, because I do see her as so committed to, you know, action and results as opposed to sort of rhetoric and process. I learned a lot just from reading the day in day out coverage from the people who cover Capitol Hill and my research assistant produced these, you know, massive nexus dumps for me. And I just read every word and you learn so much about the ins and outs, the machinations of the legislative process and what she was thinking at the time. Uh, And so I really did feel like I learned more about her from Watching her in action, as it were, than from almost anything that that she told me in an interview.
2: Now, I think that a lot of writers are blessed with wonderful creative editors, and others are blessed with editors who just write the check and want you to do it all on your own and not be a a problem. Did you expect that the literary world, the publishing world, was going to have the kind of editor that you had? And uh, what other sort of impressions did you take away from moving from magazines and journalism into this amazing industry that in some ways is still stuck in the
1: 1920s? Uh, Well, my editor was wonderful. She sort of offered as much, my book editor, she sort of offered as much or as little hand-holding as I needed. Um, But I think every writer knows, you know, you've got a sort of kitchen cabinet of supplemental editors who are your, you know, your, your, your spouse, Uh, your close friends, maybe your, your, your magazine editor or others. And so I think the main thing I learned was asking someone to read your book draft is a lot to ask. It's a big investment of time and energy and you really find out who your friends are (laughs) (laughs) when you find out, you know, who's willing to, you know, kill themselves to read your book on deadline and give you those insights. And once you have gone through the ringer of coming up with, you know, 100,000 words plus, you are just dying for some kind of not even validation, but just recognition that it has been accomplished. (laughs) So you need people to read it, but you know, it's a lot to ask. And I'm just incredibly grateful to my spouse and to the other (laughs) friends and colleagues who are willing to do that for me. Because even no matter how good your editor is, you want as many pairs of eyes on it as you can possibly get.
2: That's true. And I, yeah, that's always a little suspicious when you send the manuscript out to somebody who's going to blurb the book and you get the blurb back two days later. Right. (laughs) Either you were really (laughs) bored. (laughs) No questions asked. (laughs) Did you turn to any other biographers, professional biographers to ask them for advice about how to get started or at points along the way?
1: Um, I definitely talked to to a lot of uh, my friends who were writing books at the time or have written books I don't know that I sought out biographers specifically, and maybe I should have. To be completely honest, I don't want to badmouth the form in any way because, of course, it has its own challenges. But I was grateful that my first book was a biography because it really took one major difficulty of the writing off the table, and that is sort of structuring it. You're almost never going to write a biography that's not almost 100% chronological. And if this were a more conceptual book, a book about a theme, or even a book of narrative about you know, a historical subject, I would have had to think a lot harder about you know, which pieces to put where, which for me is always the hardest part of any type of long form writing. So the fact that it was a biography gives it a natural shape. You know what the beginning is, you know where the end is, even if your subject is still with us. And so then you just sort of divide it into chunks.
2: Now, the flip side of that is you're writing about a living person, and so I took a, a quick look at um, your notes in the back of the book. There's no great huge Nancy Pelosi collection at Berkeley that you could go and rummage through for you know, a month and find love letters to Ted or political strategy memos. So you know, how, how do you deal with the lack of paper?
1: Well, it probably helps that I'm not much of a researcher. <laughs> You know, as a reporter, I'm almost, you know, and I didn't major in history in in college. I feel like there's a lot of that archive stuff uh, that I wish I knew how to do and don't. Um, But my strength is I know a lot of people in Washington. I know a lot of people in current politics and who have been in politics. I'm able to reach a lot of people and I'm able to, you know, engage with a lot of contemporaneous sources So as much as I would like this biography to be viewed as as comprehensive and definitive and conclusive and all of that, obviously she is still writing her story and she wasn't going to give me or anybody else uh, access to uh, her papers that are already there. I I tried and I know others have as well. So this will only ever be a a sort of interim check-in on the life and career of Nancy Pelosi. So there are just other chapters that will have to be written eventually.
2: As I've found out many times, it's continuous flow, and every 10 years, there's a definitive biography written, so you, you shouldn't feel bad about that. <laughs> um, as a magazine writer, you get to choose whether you're going to write in the first person, drop the all-important I in there, or write in the uh, third person. Did you think about voice before you sat down and began to write it? What would be most appropriate for your subject?
1: I did, and... Uh... I would say I made one sort of important and and kind of unusual choice early on. And that was that I wanted this to read as narrative rather than as reporting. I mean, I would like to think it's almost novelistic in the way it sort of carries you through events by telling a story and it's not interrupted by ahistorical quotations for the most part. I don't have sort of contemporary observers quoted reflecting back from today on what happened then, I tried to keep the reader in the moment and to do almost a sort of omniscient, when I was able to feel like I knew Nancy Pelosi's state of mind, to bring the reader as close as possible to inside her head at those moments. Uh, without, without overstepping, right, I, I was very careful not to speculate on, on things I couldn't establish. And without giving up other perspectives. You want to also be able to step outside your subject to reflect how others view her. But that, I think, was the most important writerly choice that I consciously made in writing this. There is no first person in the body of the book, and I think that that was a choice I made for the same reason, wanting the reader to feel in the moment and as close to the subject as possible. But then I sort of, I broke the fourth wall in the afterword and reflected on my conclusions from the book and its reporting and sort of my relationship with my subject and and, and reflected a little bit on what I think uh, Nancy Pelosi's legacy will be.
2: Well, you did a spectacular job. I, uh, I loved it I'm, and uh, I know the house. I know a little bit about her. I've interviewed her and I could see the obstacles that you were gonna be facing and it was, uh, it's, it's terrific.
1: Thank you, Jack. That means a lot coming
2: from you, it really does. Well, um, did you go out and read two or three biographies ahead of time and say, so this is how they do it? Or did you turn to the, to the great mass of biographies out there for inspiration?
1: You know, I'll be totally honest. I'm a mom of three with like two and a half (laughs) full-time jobs. And I was on a pretty tight deadline with this book. We wanted to sort of strike while the iron was hot. So I didn't have time to do a lot of background reading. I barely have time to read books, you know, even when I'm not writing one, uh, you can't write a political biography and not think about Robert Caro on some level for better or worse, right? There are choices that he made that, that I wouldn't make in the type of book that I was writing. But uh, I read some non-political biographies for inspiration. My friend, Sally Bedell Smith, who I think is brilliant, um, read her uh, Prince Charles biography where I think she's very good at sort of psychologically penetrating a very difficult subject who's impossible to access. Right. And then, you know, there are a lot of parallels you talk about parallels to the type of book you're writing. I didn't want to be cheesy about it, but this is sort of, you know, a female empowerment book. I went back and read the notorious RBG, which is quite well written and well done and and a very good sort of popular gloss on a historical figure, which is, you know, close to the note that I wanted to strike. And then my editor suggested, and this also ended up being a very good investment um, reading Jonathan Alter's book about FDR's first 100 days. And that was an interesting window into how it's possible to write about the incredibly daunting machinations of the federal government in a way that actually means something to the average person.
2: So you sit down and, well, first of all, do you write on longhand or uh, on the computer or on a typewriter?
1: Ah, so I downloaded Scrivener at many people's suggestion when I began this process. And I have never spent a better $45 in my life. It has changed my life so much for the better. And I now use it for every magazine article. So it's the best thing that's ever been invented as far as I'm concerned for this form. Now, when I was doing interviews, I took notes in longhand while recording, and I ended up not having time to Transcribe all those notes, but needing to have them handy. So, what I did was I just scanned them all and uploaded the scans into my Scrivener file. And then I was able to refer back to those when I
2: needed them. Did you use old fashioned file folders at all?
1: I had a couple of paper files. Actually, J. Newton Small, who uh, preceded me at time and who interviewed and profiled Nancy Pelosi multiple times, was kind enough to give me her thick file folder, which she found while cleaning out her old office in our DC bureau. And there were some really cool unpublished nuggets and tidbits that I was able to draw from that. But that was the only sort of thick sheaf of paper that I was really handling in this whole process.
2: And did you start to write before you finished all your interviews and research or did you did you not have en- enough time to do that and you had to do both at the same time?
1: I should have started writing sooner. I bet everybody says that. Um, I at the very least should have started organizing sooner because once I was you know, dividing, the narrative up into chunks, it was so much easier to see what I needed, what I still had to go out and get. So I did spend a couple months reporting and not doing any writing. But then when I had to bear down and start writing, I wasn't finished reporting. So I did end up doing some of it simultaneously, just because I was on a tight deadline.
2: And do you begin at the beginning? Or do you begin when you when you know, you've got everything you need to do that particular chapter?
1: I begin at the beginning, I cannot write a story without a lead. Whenever, you know, an editor says, oh, just write the B matter and we'll just have it on hand. I, I'm just incapable of doing that. I, I have to have my lead before I can start writing.
2: And uh, how many times did you revise?
1: Oh, gosh, I see revising as a process. <laughs> I don't see them as. Hey, individual we like, where, like
2: how a, many drafts did you have?
1: Um, three or four, I think, like in terms of like official, like things that went back and forth from me to the publisher. But honestly, when you're when you're doing something on a computer, it it all blurs together.
2: <laughs> so here's a question that the Paris Review asked Stacey Schiff. So I feel somewhat on solid ground to ask you. Does being a mother change the way that you create literature? Absolutely. Okay.
1: And I don't think you should feel bad for asking that question. And not only is it a legit question, it relates directly to the content of this book, you know. I thought a lot about motherhood in writing this book for a lot of reasons. The very first time I sat down with Nancy Pelosi, January 2018 in Baltimore, in Little Italy, where she grew up and uh, it was 20 degrees out and she had chocolate ice cream for breakfast. (laughs) And so, of course, that had to be my lead. And you don't have a choice in a situation like that. But, uh, you know, in that very first conversation, a lot of people know about Nancy Pelosi, that she comes from a political family, that her father was a member of Congress when she was born and went on to be mayor of Baltimore. So, and especially interviewing her in Baltimore, it was natural for me to ask about him, Uh, but she almost immediately brought up her mother instead. And it was clear to me that after a lifetime of seeing herself put in the context of her father, she wanted to refocus the narrative on her mother because she felt that her mother's contributions had been overlooked. And in fact, this was a point that didn't reflect very well on her father because she talked very frankly to me, about the ways in which her father uh, limited her mother's horizons, the way that her mother, Big Nancy, as she was called uh, when she was alive, you know, she wanted to go to law school. She wanted to be an auctioneer. She patented a beauty product and wanted to sell it nationally. as She wanted to make investments. Uh, But in those days, you needed a man's signature to do any of those things. And her husband would not give it to her. And Nancy Pelosi was very frank about the way, you know, she was shaped growing up by this awareness of what it meant to be limited in the possibilities of your life simply because you were born a woman. When she was growing up, her, her parents wanted her to be a nun. She had no interest in that. And so, so she said, well, maybe I could be a priest. And she had five <laughs> older brothers and someone had to explain to her why that was a possibility for them, but not for her. And in the same way, you know, her older brothers all sort of learned at daddy's knee, the arts of politics. Uh, she didn't get that training she had to uh, learn a lot of this on her own, despite coming from that background. So that was one way in which motherhood was important to my subject. But also, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a mom of five. She had five kids in six years and she did not begin her. I mean, a lot of people don't know this, but she actually did not begin her career in elected office until she had finished raising her children. Her youngest daughter was a senior in high school when she first ran for office uh, in a special election in 1987. And she went to her and she said, Alexandra, mommy has a chance to run for Congress, uh, but I won't do it if you don't want me to. And Alexandra, who's sort of the rebel of the family, she like scoffed and rolled her eyes in classic 17 year old manner and said, mom, get a life. (laughs) So, but all that is to say, I think being a mom gave me a lot of insight into Nancy Pelosi that I don't think someone who hasn't been there would have had. I was able to relate to her when she talked to me about the feeling when you have a newborn and you're sleep deprived and you don't know how you can possibly manage this incredible chaos and you become aware that your capacities have expanded. You realize you have these wellsprings of energy of capability that you didn't realize you had and so when people talk about you know her energy level her stamina her ability to manage so many tasks at once and i draw an explicit parallel in the book between you know managing a group of five young children and managing a caucus of unruly Democrats. Right, politicians are very much like toddlers. They're they're egomaniacs who always think they're the center of the universe and need to be constantly placated and are constantly looking around to make sure that what they're getting is as much or better than what somebody else got. And it's it's this sort of you know fractious team of rivals. And uh, you know Nancy Pelosi has a mantra that she always repeats to the Democratic caucus. Uh, our diversity is our strength, but our unity is our power. And from time to time, I've, I've been inspired to say that to my children <laughs> as I'm trying to get them to, you know, just put their shoes on and get in the minivan. Now you uh, have
2: three small children, right?
1: Well, they're not as small as they used to be, but I have a, a 12 and 8 and a 6-year-old. Okay. And so all that is to say that... Um, I feel like I learned lessons on parenting as well as lessons on leadership uh, <laughs> from studying Nancy Pelosi. But I also think our sort of our shared experience of motherhood gave me special insight into her uh, that that perhaps her her previous biographers uh, weren't lucky enough to have.
2: How do you write a book um, or be the national correspondent for Time Magazine while having three small children?
1: Yeah, the secret to um, raising children while having a job is very simple. You pay someone else to take care of your children. So. That's what I have always done. (laughs) No, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, I do think it's important for working women to speak frankly about the help that we need to raise our children, right? We can't create this illusion that we're having it all and juggling it all and doing it all flawlessly and all by ourselves because nobody is. And I also have an extremely generous and wonderful and enlightened husband who also shoulders a large amount of the
0: child-rearing duties So
2: that's how I do it. Well, as David Frost would say, marvelous,
0: marvelous. (laughs) That was journalist Molly Ball speaking with fellow biographer Jack Farrell about her book, Pelosi, published by Henry Holt in May 2020. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on September 24th, 2021. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, Biographers International.org. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music, and until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.